Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this chance to come together this evening in your name. We thank you for the opportunity to gather around this wonderful book. We pray that you would help us to put aside all of the things with which we've been distracted during this day and that you would open our hearts to what you might want to speak to us from your scriptures as we study them and from the wisdom that Lewis derives from your word that's in this book. Lord, we pray that you would use this time to help draw us more to the things of your kingdom and to conform us more to the image of your son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So the music tonight is something that once again, I have had mercy on your soul, and uh, it is something that is pretty easy, I think. So let's see whether we can get that going. Oh. So what's that? <laughs> So, Ebenezer was the word I was waiting for. We're going to come back to that, so hold that thought. Uh, let's say our verse together. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So as we uh, start tonight, just a word of welcome to anyone who's new in person or online. We are delighted to have you. Uh, as I say, every time there are three ways to approach this class. You can be on the beach, which means you just basically don't do much. You may occasionally appear, you don't read anything, and you hope you get a little by osmosis. If that's all you want to do, I'm delighted to have you. Or you can snorkel, which is you can pay attention in the parts that you like and not so much on the others. Or you can scuba dive, uh, which means you go down the rabbit hole and you read all the handouts and follow the links and all of that that I send out. And I had a great question tonight that was prompted by the handout last week that I warned you about for scuba divers uh, that was a uh, theological paper that Lewis did for Westcott House in Cambridge that's called Fernseed and Elephants. And it's a, it's a great paper but it is full of unusual vocabulary. So someone asked me, what if you're a scuba diver and you read it and you finish and you say, huh? <laughs> uh, and I will say, if you were a real scuba diver, there would be plenty of things underwater where you wouldn't know what they were. Uh, so don't feel bad, but I hope that it will stoke your curiosity 
and maybe read it again, look up some of the words, uh, and if, you, uh, if other people are in that boat, I may find a, an explanatory essay that helps unpack that a little bit. Uh, if you are out there in podcast land and you are not on our class email list, uh, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston, USA, and uh, shoot us an email, and we'll be happy to get you added to the mailing list. So as we talked about, one of the things that is a genius portion of Lewis's work in this book is the fact that it is simultaneously operating on three different levels. So on one level, it is a marvelous capstone work to all of the children's stories in the Chronicles of Narnia that draws everything together to a fitting close. But it is also, at the same time, a profound reflection on original sin, on the sin of Eden, the means of grace, and the glory of heaven. And thirdly, it is a parable about following Jesus that is peculiarly applicable to the cultural moment that we're in right now and the whole idea of what word with a capital W and truth with a capital T actually mean. So we talked earlier when we started the class about the fact that Lewis and the Inklings believed deeply in the power of story. And in this, they were like Jesus, who did a lot of his teaching through stories. And they believed that in the spirit of the age and all of the despair uh, connected with the world wars, that one of the ways to get around people who had dismissed the idea of Christianity completely was to tell them a good story that would get around what uh, Lewis called the watchful dragons of the mind. And what they did here was to uh, really take on a lot of really important issues, but at the same time, deal with them in a way that comes through story. And in this story, we see Lewis playing with the idea of apes and monkeys. And of course, apes are really associated with Darwin and progressivism, and they've been figures of fun and mischief in different types of literature. The donkey, the lowliest of beasts, but that donkey who has such an important role in scripture and bearing Mary with Jesus in her womb toward Bethlehem, bearing Jesus to Jerusalem at the end of his earthly ministry as he goes to the cross, and then Numbers 22 and Balaam's ass who has greater spiritual insight than any of the other people in that whole chapter. So Lewis is gonna play with all of that. He's also gonna play with a lot of parallels to Genesis 3, which is the story of the fall. Uh, we're also gonna see reverence for the creation uh, trees and unicorns and lots of other wondrous things. So we talked about uh, chapter three, the ape and its glory. And one of the things going on here is the ape insisting that he is the one who is the communication mouthpiece for Aslan. That Aslan no longer speaks himself, he only speaks through this ape. But you can't call him an ape because although he is objectively an ape, he looks like an ape, he smells like an ape, he dresses like an ape, he says, I am a man and I insist that you call me a man even though objectively that is not what I am. And so the ape uh, is in his glory in this chapter. And then we move on into uh, chapter four and Tyrion, the last king of Narnia is tied up to a tree in this chapter because he has surrendered to the Calormenes and to the ape. And as he goes through the surrender, he is immediately taken away, tied to a tree, and abandoned. And as he is there, uh, the Narnian animals come and minister to him. Um, Tyrion cries out for aid, and then he has a vision of another world. So there are a number of themes in this chapter that we're going to unpack. Um, two of them we talked about last week, the loneliness and suffering of the king for doing the right thing. And this is an important lesson for us because many of us have bought into uh, the children's story, The Little Engine That Could, and we think if we do all the right things, we're going to get to the top and it's all going to be great. 
But the fact of the matter is a lot of times we do the right thing and it is painful and it is not a lot of fun. Uh, Jesus does not promise that when we follow him, as we heard in the sermon tonight, that it is all going to be a carnival of fun, uh, that there very often is suffering that comes with that. But then right after that, there is this beautiful passage about the love and the loyalty of the Narnian talking beast who go and minister to Tyrion. And if you haven't read this part, please read it because it's so beautiful watching Lewis's description of the ingenious ways that these little animals figure out how to get all the way up to Tyrion's mouth to give him little cups of wine and how they carry it up and down uh, strategically so they don't spill a drop. Um, it's just a beautiful thing. And tonight we're gonna look at the emptiness of false religion. We're gonna talk a little bit about the connection of faith and self-sacrifice prayer and hope, stepping out in faith in the miraculous, and prayer, waiting, and disappointment. So last week, uh, the loneliness and suffering of the king for doing the right thing, and part of what we talked about there is that the scriptures tell us that we should not be surprised when suffering ensues when we've done the right thing. And I just wanna read this verse from 1 Peter again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And part of what is so significant about that that's gonna show up over and over again in this book is that rejoicing, contrary to what our culture says, is not dependent on the circumstances of your life all going exactly the way that you want. Rejoicing is a choice that you make on what you focus on. And when you focus on the things that Christ has done and the victory that he has won eternally for us, it helps all of the other things to fall into place. So, the second thing that we talked about was the love and loyalty of the Narnian talking beast. And I love this little exchange about halfway down where they say, Lord King, dear Lord King, we are so sorry for you. We dare not untie you because Aslan might be angry with us, but we've brought you your supper. Little friend, said Tyrion, how can I thank you for all this? You needn't, you needn't, said the little voices. What else could we do? We don't want any other king. We are your people. If it were only the ape and the Calermines who were against you, we would have fought till we were cut into pieces before we'd have let them tie you up. We would, we would indeed, but we can't go against Aslan. And this beautiful loyalty that they have and their bravery, because the ape has made it very clear that uh, Tyrion is on his bad list and that he's likely to be executed, and yet these animals take this risk because they love their king. And there's a beautiful part just before that where they come up to him and they only are up to his knees, but they're surrounding his knees with snuffly kisses. And uh, it's just a beautiful example of the love and affection and loyalty that there is in that kingdom. So that brings us to tonight and the emptiness of idols and false religion. So this is the passage we'll start with. It was a bonfire newly lit and people were throwing bundles of brushwood onto it. Presently it blazed up and Tyrion could see it was on the very top of the hill. He could see quite clearly the stable behind it, all lit up in the red glow and a great crowd of beasts and men between the fire and himself. A small figure hunched up beside the fire must be the ape. It was saying something to the crowd, but he could not hear what. Then it went and bowed three times to the ground in front of the door of the stable. Then it got up and opened the door, and something on four legs, something that walked rather stiffly, came out of the stable and stood facing the crowd. A great wailing or howling went up, so loud that Tyrion could hear some of the words. Aslan, 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 cried the beast. Speak to us, comfort us, be angry with us no more. 
From where Tyrion was, he could not make out very clearly what the thing was, but he could see that it was yellow and hairy. He had never seen the great lion. He had never seen even a common lion. He couldn't be sure that what he saw was not the real Aslan. He had not expected Aslan to look like that stiff thing which stood and said nothing. But how could one be sure? For a moment, horrible thoughts went through his mind. And then he remembered the nonsense about Cash and Aslan being the same and knew that the whole thing must be a cheat. And you'll remember last week we talked about the danger of theological innovation. And all of the scripture that is all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, and we have the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the idea that suddenly we're going to discover something that fundamentally changes the idea of who Jesus is and what he taught and what the whole focus of the Christian faith is, that's the kind of theological innovation that is heresy. And Lewis is showing us how this works through this story. And so that whole idea that Aslan and Tash are one, that all gods are the same, is manifestly untrue. But just like in our culture, that is the narrative, the narrative that is being pushed by all of the uh, media sources, if you will, the ape and all of his minions. So some, um, this is chapter four. So here's some scripture related to this whole idea. And remember, anything that is not the true God is an idol. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or cast an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And the prophets of Baal cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And the scene from Elijah and the prophets of Baal, I have to believe Lewis has that in the back of his mind as he writes the scene. And they're crying out um, to this false god and this poor donkey who's up there dressed in a lion's skin who can't do anything, who's absolutely without power. And one of the things that is interesting here is you see the destruction that people bring on themselves trying to serve this false God. And one of the things that we as Christians have to be very careful about, and you'll see this unfold in the story later on, is it's really easy for us to get angry with people that are worshiping false gods and to disdain them. But what we forget is that their following of those false gods is going to harm them and ultimately lead them to death. And we need to hold to the truth, but we need to have compassion on the delusions that these people suffer from and try to reach out to them with the truth that is only found in Christ. So then another theme that shows up here that again is gonna go all through this book, faith, remembering, and self-sacrifice. But that story, too, had come all right in the end. He's reminiscing here. Tyrion is reminiscing about some of the early stories, stories of the Chronicles of Narnia and things that had happened to characters there. And if you haven't read the other stories, don't worry. 
It's totally fine. You don't need to know that for all of this to make sense. But if you have read them, this will resonate even the more with you. But that story, too, had come all right in the end, for Caspian also had been helped by children. Only there were four of them that time who came from somewhere beyond the world and fought a great battle and set him on his father's throne. And what this is referring to is that in the first book uh, of the Chronicles, uh, which is the line, the witch in the wardrobe, not the magician's nephew, but that's a whole nother thing. If you haven't read them, please read the line, the witch in the wardrobe first. Don't read The Magician's Nephew till you've read all the other ones except The Last Battle, which if you're in this class, you already will have read that anyway. Uh, but The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, what happens is the children, these four children, the Pevensey children from Finchley, uh, which is a middle-class suburb of London, are drawn magically into this world of Narnia. And the world of Narnia is oppressed by the White Witch, who makes it always winter and never Christmas. But there is a prophecy from the olden days, from the creation of Narnia, when Aslan sung Narnia into existence, that one day Adam's flesh and Adam's bone would come to Caer Paravel, the capital, the castle uh, for the kings and queens of Narnia, and that when those four thrones were filled, by sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, then the evil time would be over and done. So these four children who don't know anything about any of this show up, they are immediately met by talking beavers, which completely freaks them out, and they're taken to the beaver's house and told that they are in fact the fulfillment of this prophecy and that they are to become the kings and queens of Narnia. And they're like, but no, well, from Finchley. Uh, but in fact, they are exactly the kings and queens of Narnia. They don't realize the call that is on their life. They don't realize the path that has been prepared for them of which they are not aware. But to their credit, through Aslan, the great lion, who's the Christ figure, they lean into that destiny, and in fact, all Narnia is saved. And so those children become the kings and queens and they are adults in Narnia, but then when they are called back into England because time is different between Narnia and our world, they become children again. But they are the great uh, heroes and heroines of Narnian history. So these are the four children he's talking about. But it was all so long ago, said Tyrion to himself, that sort of thing doesn't happen now. And then he remembered, for he had always been good at history when he was a boy, how those same four children who had helped Caspian had been in Narnia over a thousand years before. And it was then that they had defeated the terrible white witch and ended the hundred years of winter. And after that, they had reigned all four of them together at Caer Paravel till they were no longer children, but great kings and lovely queens. And their reign had been the golden age of Narnia. And Aslan had come into that story a lot. He had come into all the other stories too, as Tyrion now remembered. Aslan and children from another world, thought Tyrion, they have always come in when things were at their worst. Oh, if only they could come now. And he called out, Aslan, 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 come and help us now. But the darkness and the cold and the quietness went on just the same. Let me be killed, cried the king. I ask nothing for myself, but come and save all Narnia. Says some scripture. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. 
and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. And one of the things that is going on here is that we are seeing how Tyrion is processing in his mind all of these things that he knows, but he hasn't thought a lot about. And this is very consonant with what we see in the scriptures and this theme of the connection of faith and remembering. And it's interesting as you go through the Old Testament, the Israelites are enjoined over and over and over to remember the great works of the Lord, to remember how he delivered them from the Egyptians, to remember to teach their children these stories. And even now, if you go to a Passover meal, which I hope you will at some point in your life, that verse that we just had is the question that will be asked in the Passover meal as they begin to recount the story of how the Lord delivered them. And this theme of remembering is woven by Lewis right from the beginning in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And this is one of the ways, remember we're talking about theological innovation. The way that theological innovation and heresy take root is when people have stopped remembering, when they have forgotten their history, when they have forgotten the great deeds of the Lord, and they have forgotten ways that they were delivered. So in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you will remember if you've read it, um, that Edmund, one of the children, betrays all of the rest of them. And it is a terrible thing, and he ultimately is rescued away from the White Witch. But the White Witch comes to Aslan and says this, "'You have a traitor there, Aslan,' said the witch. "'Well,' said Aslan, "'his offense was not against you.' Have you forgotten the deep magic, asked the witch. Let us say I have forgotten it, answered Aslan gravely. Tell us of this deep magic. Tell you, said the witch, her voice growing suddenly shriller. Tell you what is written on that very table of stone which stands beside us. You at least know the magic which the emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. Aslan is the son of the emperor. You know that every traitor belongs to me, the white witch, as my lawful prey, and that for every treachery, I have a right to kill. And so, that human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property. And at this point, there's wailing and gnashing of teeth, and all of the creatures and people in Narnia say, Aslan, Aslan, do something. And then Aslan says something very surprising. He says, it is very true. I do not deny it. Oh, Aslan, whispered Susan in the lion's ear. Can't we, I mean, you won't, well, you can't, can't we do something about the deep magic? Isn't there something you can work against it? Work against the emperor's magic, said Aslan, turning to her with something like a frown on his face, and nobody ever made that suggestion to him again. And in Narnia, the deep magic is more or less analogous to God's revelation of himself. All that we know about God and his kingdom revealed starting in Genesis all the way through the scriptures, that is the deep magic. That is the eternal word of God that shapes reality in every way. And Aslan admits that in that magic, there is punishment that comes for betrayal. 
But what ends up happening is that Aslan gives himself, surrenders to the white witch, much like we've just seen Tyrion surrender. He surrenders to the white witch and she shaves his mane off, mocks him with all of her minions, and then puts him to death on the stone table, which is like an altar of sacrifice. And so Susan and Lucy, the two girls, are there, and they are absolutely in despair. The deepest despair where there are not even any more tears to cry. They are utterly in despair. All of their hopes have been crushed, and they don't know what to do. And so they're there next to the stone table after they've been cradling Aslan's dead body in their arms. And then they move and sit at the base of the table and the story picks up. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end and there was no Aslan. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice from behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked round. There, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had ever seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. But what does it all mean, asked Susan, when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. That is the truth of the gospel told in a story. And what Lewis is trying to get us to see here is Tyrion remembering that this is the framework of how the deep magic works in Narnia and that that faith and remembering and self-sacrifice are all intricately woven with one another. So this deep magic is woven into the very heart of Narnia and the understanding that self-sacrifice can lead to redemption and to freedom is a core part of the story that works its way through all of these books in this series. And it's very much like the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15 that we've talked about in some other classes. And remember, Genesis 3 is going to keep showing up in this story, so you might want to go read that sometime. Not if you're on the beach. Uh, but in Genesis 3.15, God says, this is right after the fall, after the apple has been eaten, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This proto-evangelium, which is a fancy word for first gospel, establishes two foundational principles that were at this point unknown in the Garden of Eden. Principles that foreshadow the Christian gospel. The curse that is on mankind because of Adam's sin and the fall and God's provision for a savior from that sin who would take the curse upon himself. And this whole idea of this promise is remembered all through scripture. And when you come, as I hope you will, on December 10th for the service of lessons and carols at St. Philip's, there is one of the readings that is Genesis 3.15 to remind us that as we look toward the incarnation and the birth of Christ to save us from our sins, that God's made provision for this 
all the way thinking back to the beginning of Genesis. So this whole idea of remembering is so important. And this relates to what we were just talking about with chronological snobbery. We don't like to remember. We like what's new, what's bold, what's innovative, what's boundary breaking, all of those kinds of things. Old stuff, who wants that? That's what old people like, and we certainly, none of us, ever want to be thought of as being old. So this idea of remembering is countercultural, but it's so important. And one of the concepts related to remembering is this word Ebenezer um, that we heard in our opening song. And it is a call, this kind of remembering, is to call to present remembrance God's work and promise from the past. And in 1 Samuel 7, 12, we see an example of this with Samuel taking a stone and naming it Ebenezer and saying, thus far, the Lord helped us. And then there's this beautiful passage from Joshua 4, when God has brought the Israelites to the brink of the Jordan River to cross into the promised land, and the Jordan River is at flood stage, and God tells them to take the Ark of the Covenant, their most precious possession, and to walk into this flood water. That's a big ask. And yet they are obedient. And as they do that, the waters pile up and they're able to walk over this river on these flat river bottom stones and come out on the other side. And this is where the story picks up. When the whole nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Because how soon we forget. How soon even those of us that may have experienced a miracle or a deliverance or something incredible in our lives, how easily we just forget and move on. But the point that these scriptures and this concept of Ebenezer is that we need to remember, because when we remember, we are remembering, uh, in Narnia, we're remembering the deep magic, but as Christians, we are remembering the promises and God's faithfulness demonstrated through generation after generation after generation. And Charles Dickens, who has not read enough these days, uh, Charles Dickens was not a dummy when it came to scripture. And it is not an accident that his chief character in A Christmas Carol is Ebenezer Scrooge. And remember that as he starts off his dreams or nightmares, whatever you'd like to call them, it starts by remembering. So, one of the things that I would strongly urge you to do if the Dock Street Theater does A Christmas Carol uh, in December, please go see it. Uh, it will be a great reminder about this. And then I love the story of Robert Robinson. Uh, Robert Robinson is someone who deserves to be better known. Um, he was born in England in 1735. Very soon after his birth, his father died and his mother, although she was genteel, didn't have any money because uh, her family had cut them off. So she had to, uh, to make ends meet, apprentice her son to a barber in London. So she sent him to London, and uh, barbers were not particularly nice people back in the 18th century, and this boy fell in with a really rough street gang. 
Think about uh, Fagin's Boys and Oliver Twist, that sort of thing. So they became thieves, they drank, uh, and by the time he was 15 or so, he was pretty much a hardened criminal, and they were um, stealing things and all of that. And Robinson, when he was 17, uh, he and his friends went to a fortune teller to get their fortunes told, and then right after that, they saw a poster, a street bill up, about some guy named George Whitfield coming to preach. And so they thought, this is awesome because we have this famous preacher coming and we know where all the vegetable stands are and we're gonna fill up our bags with rotten vegetables and we're gonna sneak in there like we're pretending to be religious. And when he starts getting going with his sermon, we're gonna stand up and we're gonna throw every rotten vegetable that we have at him and bring this guy down. So they went in fully planning to do that, but the Holy Spirit struck and Robert Robinson was absolutely captivated by Whitfield's sermon. And this is a great message for preachers because Whitfield's text was, you brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the coming retribution which is perhaps not the like, sweetest text you could preach on. But anyway, Richard Robert Robinson was absolutely mesmerized by Whitfield. He gave his heart to Christ uh, at 17 and then started trying to learn the Christian faith. And when he was 22, he wrote, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And in that, he very deliberately put this verse, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy grace I've come. And he wrote uh, an inscription in a Bible noting the date that Whitfield preached and then the date that he wrote this hymn because he wanted to always remember that. And he knew himself well, you know that verse, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And then that whole part about take my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. But he understood this principle of Ebenezer and remembering. And it's not an accident. If you read through this passage in the story, look how many times the word remember or remembering is in there. So, I could talk about that all night, but I won't. Um, prayer and hope. Uh, there's so much in this chapter about prayer. I would love to do a prayer retreat sometime and just use this chapter as the text. So, Tyrion has prayed, but look what happens. He's prayed, and still there was no change in the night or in the wood. But there began to be a kind of change inside Tyrion. Without knowing why, he began to feel a faint hope, and he felt somehow stronger. There is a great lesson right there uh, from the Psalms. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of the Hermon from Mount Mizar, and then again from Lamentations. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then from Psalm 119, O oh Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. And this great passage from Mere Christianity. What I mean is this. An ordinary simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He's trying to get into touch with God. But if he is a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, inside him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God, that Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening. 
God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he is trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal so that the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. We must never underestimate the importance of prayer and what is happening because what prayer does is it begins to change us. And we see this in the story. So as Tyrion gets to that place of having a little bit of hope, he gets bolder after these initial prayers. And he steps out in faith and something miraculous happens. Oh, Aslan, Aslan, he whispered, if you will not come yourself, at least send me the helpers from beyond the world or let me call them. Let my voice carry beyond the world. Then hardly knowing that he was doing it, he suddenly cried out in a great voice, children, children, friends of Narnia, quick, come to me. Across the worlds I call you. I, Tyrion, king of Narnia, lord of Caraparavel, and emperor of the Lone Islands. Now, can you imagine here he is out in the middle of the woods tied to a tree. Anyone listening would think that he had lost his mind. But he is calling out. He is stepping out in faith because he believes that Aslan is hearing his prayer. And then he was plunged into a dream, if it was a dream, more vivid than any he had had in his life. He seemed to be standing in a lighted room where seven people sat round a table. Two of these people were very old, an old man with a white beard and an old woman with wise, merry, twinkling eyes. He who sat at the right hand of the old man was hardly fully grown, certainly younger than Tyrion himself, but his face had already the look of a king and a warrior. They were all dressed in what seemed to Tyrion the oddest kind of clothes. But he had no time to think about details like that, for instantly the youngest boy and both the girls started to their feet, and one of them gave a little scream. The old woman started and drew in her breath sharply. The old man must have made some sudden movement too, for the wine glass which stood at his right hand was swept off the table. Tyrion could hear the tinkling noise as it broke on the floor. Then Tyrion realized that these people could see him. They were staring at him as if they saw a ghost. Some scripture. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. That's Jonah. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, and Herod was not bringing him out to release him, he was bringing him out to execute him, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And Peter went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading out into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. Now the interesting thing here is both Tyrion and Peter are in impossible situations. Tyrion is tied to a tree where he cannot move within sight of the ape and the stable and all of the soldiers. Peter 
is on death row, basically, with soldiers on either side, multiple locked gates, and sentries guarding the way. But what both of these stories are telling us is that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And it is a reminder to us when we get in what looks to be a situation that is awful and impossible and the only way out is despair and death, that God is in the business of doing more than we could ever ask or imagine and doing things in a way that we could never, ever even think about. So we need to remember that. But then there's the other part, prayer, waiting, and disappointment. But Tyrion noticed that the king-like one who sat at the old man's right never moved, though he turned pale, except that he clenched his hand very tight. Then he said, speak if you're not a phantom or a dream. You have a Narnian look about you, and we are the seven friends of Narnia. Tyrion was longing to speak, and he tried to cry out aloud that he was Tyrion of Narnia in great need of help. But he found, as I have sometimes found in dreams too, that his voice made no noise at all. The one who had already spoken to him arose to his feet. Shadow or spirit or whatever you are, he said, fixing his eyes full upon Tyrion. If you are from Narnia, I charge you in the name of Aslan, speak to me. I am Peter, the high king. The room began to swim before Tyrion's eyes. He heard the voices of those seven people all speaking at once and all getting fainter every second. And they were saying things like, look, it's fading. It's melting away. It's vanishing. Next moment, he was wide awake, still tied to the tree, colder and stiffer than ever. The wood was full of the pale, dreary light that comes before sunrise, and he was soaking wet with dew. It was nearly morning. That waking was about the worst moment he had had ever in his life. And what you see here is Tyrion's joy and excitement because he's stepped out in faith. He's cried out to Aslan, and Aslan has done the miraculous, and he enters into the presence of these children in another world, and he meets this ancient high king, which is just beyond all imagining. And so he's been called to this place, and he's all ready to give his speech and to beg for help, and it's all going to be okay. And he's leaned into the plan of God, and he gets there and he can't utter a word. He can't utter a word. He's figured out what God was going to do. And it doesn't happen that way. And all of a sudden, not only can he not speak, but now he can't see the children. And then he's back tied up to this tree. And worse than before, he's cold and he's sopping wet. And he's utterly, utterly alone. And there's a great lesson in this that when we are in the midst of walking through trying circumstances, we so often want to play God. We, we think we know how God's going to fix this. And then God doesn't do what we expect. And we have that same feeling that Tyrion has of abandonment and disappointment and maybe even anger and frustration at God. But listen to some of these scriptures. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at a proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then from Micah, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And then this important verse from Romans. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then if you don't know Psalm 73, if you ever have a bad day looking around at all the people around you that seem to be going great, and your world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket, Psalm 73 is for you. 
The beginning of that psalm says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And it is such a great reminder for us that when we get into those times and we think God is moving and then all of a sudden it just stops and the way that we thought it was going to happen doesn't happen, usually if you're like me, my response is to get angry and to get frustrated, maybe to even lose hope for a while. But what the scriptures tell us is that we are to endure, that we are to continue to hope in God. And that sort of hope is what Hebrews is talking about when it talks about the fact that you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what has been promised. And we're not very good at persevering. There is a wildly inappropriate skit by the comedian Louis C.K. that I thought about playing, but I'm not going to because it's too inappropriate. But he talks about the fact that we are so impatient, that we want it right now, and we want what we want, and the way we want it, and we want it right this minute, thank you. And the analogy he uses is being in an airport, and the flight is delayed. And the instant they announce that it's delayed 10 minutes, all of the business people in suits go immediately to this poor gate agent, and they're like, I gotta get to LA, I gotta get to LA, what are you gonna do for me? Huh? Hurry up, do something now. And the poor gate agent can't do anything about it. She's not the mechanic, she can't do any of these things. And Louis C.K. says, you know, we need to take a step back here, people. We need to think about that you're gonna walk through that door and get on something and you're gonna be sitting in an armchair in the sky. You're gonna be sitting in the armchair in the sky and it is gonna take you two hours to go from New York to LA. You need to remember that 100 years ago, people rode on wagon trains for this journey. You had to buy supplies, you had to set out in a group, and before you got there a couple of years later, half of you would be dead. <laughs> he said, you need to get a grip. And the fact of the matter is, all of us need to get a grip too. Because we expect God to be like the Chick-fil-A drive-through <laughs> that we order and then the instant that we come around the curve, the smiling person brings us exactly the right order and it's even hot. But that is not the way that scripture tells us that the kingdom of God works. And one of the things you will notice is that particularly in the Psalms, we are told over and over again, the psalmist says, my soul waits for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. And I want to commend to you, I don't know if any of you ever listened to Mumford and Sons, but there is a great song by Mumford and Sons that's called, I Will Wait. And I believe it is actually a prayer. Uh, others might argue with me about that, but when a song says, it's all about, I will wait for you, and then it talks about falling on your knees, paint my spirit gold. Um, that sounds like prayer to me, waiting on the Lord. And if there's a situation in your life where there are things going wrong and it is hard to wait, the important thing to do, and this is circling back to that remembering, remembering God's faithfulness over and over and over, whether it be in the lives of the Israelites or in the lives of the saints or in your own life, rehearsing and remembering is so important. I want us to close tonight by reading together these words that Robert Robinson wrote back in the 18th century. So please read this with me and think about what he's saying. Come thou fount of every blessing, Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. 
praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of God's unchanging love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And this is his little inscription, May the 24th, 1752, when he met Jesus through George Whitfield's preaching. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that in a world that is changeable and faithless, you alone are unchanging and true and faithful. Lord, we pray that you would bring to remembrance as you say in the Gospel of John that the word, the work of the Holy Spirit will be to bring to remembrance the things that you have said. We pray that, Lord, for ourselves, that we would not be seduced by the voices that are like the voice of the ape in the story, um, and that we would not be seduced by the voices that say God is too slow and that his deliverance will not come. But instead, we pray that you would fire our faith, that you would give us perseverance and character, that you would strengthen us, and that we would be able to rejoice because we know that our names are written in your book. Lord, we thank you that you've sent Jesus to save us from our sins and that through that we have the hope and the expectation of life eternal with you. And for that we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.